You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Luke 11, and then turning over to to, uh, 1 Samuel 18 as well. And... uh, I know you just sat down, but it's Wednesday night aerobics tonight. So let's stand back up in honor of the reading of the scripture, just out of respect of God's word. Uh, Luke 11 and 1 Samuel 18. We'll start in Luke 11 and we'll read uh, our passage that we've been reading on Wednesday nights as we go through our, our series on prayer. And we're coming down to the end of that. And I know for myself, it's been a help to just kind of dissect these pieces here in Luke 11, and uh, just a reminder of the importance of prayer in our lives. Luke 11, verse 1, uh, it says, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Focusing mostly on the first phrase of verse 4, it says, And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. To us, we'll get to First Samuel here in just a moment. Let's pray and ask the Lord help His help tonight. Father, we're grateful for Your Word and thankful for its truth and for its clarity tonight. I pray that You would help us as we open it and look at it. That You would be uh, able to work through it and illuminate it in our hearts and lives. This is an important message, in my opinion, Lord, and an important message to the life of a church. And I pray that You would help us to receive it well and to receive it in a way that you are pleased with, to help us to respond even as we ought to. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I appreciate your standing. We're going to, like I said, continue our series on prayer. And we've been calling it, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And it's based on that passage that we just read. When the disciples come to Jesus Christ and they make a request of him to teach them how to pray. The last two messages in this series have been on that phrase we just read there in Luke 11, verse 4. It says, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. In the first message that we looked at on this phrase, we, our focus was on how important it is to confess our sins and to keep a short account with God. Our Father does not take sin lightly. And it's good for us to remember that, to be reminded of that, that God doesn't take sin lightly and we shouldn't either. That that part is our responsibility to God. But we also, though, in that verse, we have a responsibility to others. It says, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Jesus Christ said to pray to God to forgive us our sins, but he almost puts a disclaimer on it. He, he almost uh, qualifies it because he also says to ask God to forgive us like we forgive other people. Do you see that? How in that phrase, 
that Jesus Christ basically says that when we pray, we are asking God to forgive us like we forgive other people. And when you start to think about forgiveness that way, it kind of changes your perspective on forgiveness, doesn't it? Because for us to ask God to forgive us in the way that we forgive other people, to me that's kind of a terrifying concept. That's a little bit scary because if God forgives me like I forgive others, how much forgiveness would I have from God? That was the focus of that second message on this phrase there in verse 4, God's forgiveness toward me and how it's contingent on how I forgive others. It's pretty sobering. And the last time that we were in this series, I read Corey Tenboom's testimony, and maybe you'll remember that, but it was about forgiving those who had wronged her. She went through the Second World War, was in a concentration camp, and as I read that story, I thought if someone treated as badly as she was treated could forgive, then why do I struggle with forgiveness at times? And we, we left it at that. We should forgive others because God will forgive us in the same way. But tonight I want to look at an example of a man who did not forgive like he should and the effect that it had on his life. And, and as we go through this story in 1 Samuel 18, you can go ahead and turn over there. As we go through this story, uh, I, I think probably the way I'm going to do it, I'm going to split it up and, and kind of take this in two different parts. I'll do one tonight and do the next one uh, the next time that we're in this series I may even finish it on Sunday night, not sure. Uh, but along the way, I think that we'll find some very practical help. And we'll see that it'll, it'll help us to see how we're, we should deal with a hurt. How we should deal with uh, an offense. How we should deal with forgiveness and bitterness. And the example that I want to look at is in the life of King Saul. He was the first king in Israel, but he mishandled a situation... And it cost him dearly. Let's begin reading in 1 Samuel 18. It says in verse 1. And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul. That the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So this is just after David has killed Goliath. It says in verse 2. And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. They had a very close relationship. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. Verse 5, And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they, as they played, and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him, and he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have, have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. And it came to pass on the morrow, the next day, that the evil spirit 
from God came upon Saul and he prophesied in the midst of the house and David played with his hand as at other times and there was a javelin in Saul's hand and Saul cast the javelin for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it and David avoided out of his presence twice. We're going to stop our reading there. I think most of us are fairly familiar with with the events of this text, the events of, of what is, what's happening here in 1 Samuel 18. And as I already mentioned, David has just defeated Goliath. So David has really just come onto the scene. He's just risen to prominence. And what I want to consider, uh, let me get my right pages here. Um, Saul brings David into his, uh, into his own home to be his personal attendant. And if you think about this, the potential for conflict is huge. Here you have the king, and the king is used to getting all the attention. He's used to having everybody do what he says. He's the man. Okay? He's the man. And then you have somebody else come along who's young. I mean, he's probably an older teenager uh, in David. And there in the valley of, of Elah, uh, David is the only one courageous enough to go out and face Goliath. And in doing so, then David becomes somewhat overnight, somewhat of a celebrity. So you have the king who's used to being the man. And then you have, I'm sorry, my pages, I forgot to put them in order. So you'll have, so here we go. This could have been a very disjointed message. So um, he was all over the place tonight, pastor was. But you think about this, the potential for conflict is huge. Um, I call it a lot, I say in this, in my mind, there's a lot of combustible material here. And all it really takes is a match to light it when you've got some dry tinder and it's ready to be lit. Well, that's what's happening here. Because first of all, think about the kind of man Saul is. Saul is the kind of man that's reactionary and he's angry and we know that he's been rebellious toward God. I mean, because of his disobedience in 1 Samuel 13 and 15, that God has rejected him as the king. And he had Samuel then go and anoint David to take his place. Now, David, the man who has been anointed to be the king in Saul's place, actually works for King Saul. Do you see the problems that might be arising here? I do. Well, the conditions are prime for trouble and, and then in verse 6, some, I'm thinking, well-meaning ladies come out and they kind of stir the pot a little bit. It says in verse 6, And it came to pass, as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. What, what I find interesting here is that the ladies, they come out of all the cities... They come out with their instruments. They're singing a song. And it even says they came out to meet King Saul. But what's interesting is they didn't come to meet King Saul to sing a song about King Saul. And you talk about, I'm not sure about their discernment here. It says in verse 7, And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. So they come to meet Saul but they come really singing a song about David. They sing a song praising David. Remember that combustible material? 
This is kind of like the light, the, the match that lights the whole thing. So now we see in verse 8 Saul's response to this. Rather than being thankful for somebody in the kingdom that was courageous enough to step up and face Goliath and kill him, here's Saul's response. It says, and Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him, and he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands. I, I, I really want to do a very whiny voice right here. They have ascribed unto David ten thousands. And to me they have ascribed but thousands. And I can see the tears. And what can he have but more but the kingdom? You ever seen a kid, a little child at Walmart that doesn't get what he wants right by the register? Boy, that's a sight to behold. I want to pull out my phone every time. That's what David, that's what Saul's doing here. He's throwing a fit because all the attention that he feels that he deserves because he's the king, is on somebody else. And it says in verse 9, And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. So Saul doesn't respond well at all. He's very rough. He knows that the attention that, that he should be getting is on David. He doesn't like it. And it says that he gives what I'm going to call, he gives David the stink eye. From that day and forward. That's not a biblical term. That's the term I've chosen to ascribe to verse 9. The stink eye. You ever known somebody that you knew just had a problem with you? And every time that you were around them, you knew they were looking at you funny? They were giving you the stink eye? I mean, that's the best stink eye I've got. I try not to give people the stink eye uh, because it's scary. But my wife has given me the stink eye before. I make plenty of mistakes. And I walk in the house and I know I've done wrong just by the way she looks at me. You don't want the stink eye, but the stink eye, you know, hopefully that doesn't last too long between my wife and I. But when you, the stink eye is coming from the king, it's, no, it's really not a laughing matter. Because the king has within his power, he can do something about what he's angry about. So he's giving David the stink eye. He's eyeing him from that day and forward. And then in verse 10, he starts to live out his anger. He said, it says, and it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied in the midst of the house. And David played with his hand as at other times. And there was a javelin in Saul's hand and Saul cast the javelin for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. So he's not just giving him the stink eye. Now he's actually trying to kill David. He's throwing javelins at David. He's trying to smite him to the wall, it says. It says that David avoided out of his presence two different times. And here's David in the house, there's an evil spirit with Saul. He's troubled. He's got mental issues and emotional issues. And he's got sin problems. And here's David using his skills as a harpist to try to help King Saul. And to try to be a blessing. And, and, and there are times where David would play the harp and an evil spirit would, would, would depart from Saul. David's trying to be a help. And yet here's Saul throwing javelins at the man that's trying to help him. And we find in verse 12 that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. 
This, is, this happens a lot. I know it had happened for me before. When you're trying to do right, and you've done right with the Lord, and somebody else is not doing right, and no matter what you do, they're going to hate you for be just simply because you're doing right. There are some times where you just cannot win, and you're trying to do right, you're trying to have the right spirit, you're trying to be above board, but when people are not right with God, they tend to take their anger out on those around them that are doing right. You've probably experienced that before. Maybe you have family that's like that, or you've got friends that are like that. Here's Saul. He's afraid of David because David's right with God and Saul is not. So Saul sends David away, but make no mistake, Saul has declared war on David. This is the beginning of a long, years-long war between Saul and David. I want you just to consider what's going on here. Saul's in a bad place emotionally. He's in a bad place spiritually. He's been rejected as Israel's king. He's paranoid. He's insecure. He's obviously not thinking clearly. And then something happens. So we're walking through the whole thing. And then something happens that pushes him over the edge. Some women come and sing a song that hurt his feelings. I mean, that's literally what's happening here. Here's Saul. He's not in a good place. He's paranoid. He's he's insecure. God has rejected him. And the thing that pushes him over the edge is these ladies that come and sing a song. Here's a grown man. He's a king. And something as harmless as words to a song push him over the edge. You know what I find? I find it interesting that it wasn't the words of Samuel the prophet confronting Saul about his sin that drove him to finally take action in his life. It wasn't the words of Goliath across the valley of Elah there in chapter 17. It wasn't the words of Goliath blaspheming Saul's God that caused him to finally take action. The words to a song by some innocent ladies that didn't give him enough credit, that's what transformed Saul into some indecisive king staring at Goliath into a man on a mission. It's interesting to me. See, and, I, and I've seen that too, and I've probably been guilty of it myself. You know, you can sit through church services and you can hear preaching uh, on change and preaching on taking action. And a lot of people just sit and they hear and, yeah, it goes in one ear and out the other. But as soon as somebody says something about their kids, there's no more complacency. As soon as somebody says something behind their back or, or says something that they don't like, it's not the preaching of God's word that stirs them up to action. Instead, it's the words that should be in one ear and out the other that should be just completely dismissed that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Those are typically what gets us moving. Those are the things that cause us to rise up and engage in a mission And Saul's mission, it's not to destroy God's enemies, it's to destroy God's anointed. A man who didn't even sing the song. Think about that. It's not like David worked something up, a a song on his harp, and then recorded it and texted it to all the ladies in the land. Here's how it goes. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Okay, y'all go... This is like a flash mob, okay? I just want you to all go out and you just go sing this song to Saul. You know, David had nothing to do with this song. David is probably 
sitting in Saul's house, practicing for his next Saul session when he's going to play the harp. I don't know what he's doing, but he's not even the one singing the song. And see, this is how twisted our brains can get when it comes to this stuff. See, it, very often our anger, our wrath towards somebody else is not really even towards something they've done to us. It's what somebody else has done, and in our minds we twist it into something that they're guilty of. Really what it is, is our minds, our hearts are not right with God, and we can take something that happens in those moments, and we could turn it against somebody else, and they may be as innocent as anything. And what I want to consider tonight is the moment that Saul hears the song. See, in this moment, Saul has two choices. Number one, he could just let it be what it was, lyrics to a song. Don't you think that Saul, in his, in his reigning over Israel, don't you think he's heard some criticizing words before? Don't you think he's had people say something about him that he didn't like or maybe even something that wasn't true? Don't you think he's heard some criticism Absolutely he has. He's the king. You can't help but have people criticize when you're in a position of leadership. It just happens. Choice number one was he could have simply just let this be a song. It's just words to a song. It doesn't really matter. I'm not going to let it get to me. Or B, take it personally and let it become the controlling force of his life. And unfortunately, Saul chooses B. He becomes consumed with the offense And based on verse 9, this is when Saul, he's eyeing David instead of ignoring it, instead of letting it go. Saul internalized it. He got angry. He let it overtake his life to the point that it affected the entire kingdom. See, we know his days are numbered as king. But instead, think about that. We know his days are numbered as king. He knows his days are numbered as king. But instead of repenting for the sin and the rebellion and all the things that he'd been doing and living out the remaining years of his life For God, which don't you think God would have received that if he'd have come in repentance? I do. If Saul had said, God, I've been wrong. I have been rebellious. This is, I just have had a bad attitude and I'm sorry. And I know you've rejected me as king. And I know David is the one coming up. But God, if you'll forgive me for my sin, I would like to live a productive life for the remaining years that I have for you. Don't you think that God would have blessed that? I do. But instead, Saul made it his mission for the next approximately seven years to try to throw javelins at David as much as he could. He spends the remaining years of his life targeting a man who was not even guilty of the offense that Saul is holding on to. And it all starts with words to a song. And we say that is crazy. But hear me tonight, Saul is not the only one prone to mishandling a life situation. Life is full of opportunities to be offended. Life is full of opportunities to be hurt. And if we're not careful, we'll do what King Saul did. Rather than letting go of the offense, we internalize it. We let something fester until we're consumed. Our inability to handle an offense often makes us casualties in the Lord's work. And if I can be honest with you tonight, I don't know that there may there I don't know that there's a more dangerous uh, there, there there's a more dangerous process for the unity of a church than when an offense or a hurt takes place. Because I know that I've seen it before, and you've probably seen it before as well. 
When there's an offense, when there's a situation, and it's not handled correctly by all parties involved, there may not be something that can tear up the unity of a church and make a church a casualty any quicker than unforgiveness and bitterness. It happens all the time. And folks, we need to be careful and on guard that we understand the process we're to go through so that we don't contribute to Eastside Baptist Church ever being a casualty of unforgiveness. So here's the process. So I'm just going to walk through the process tonight. We'll look at some more effects, I think, the next time. But here's, here's the process. Saul's situation starts with an injury. His feelings are hurt. In his mind, David's getting credit that he deserves. It's an offense. And here's how the process goes, okay? So I'm going to give you kind of a, just a, a scenario. We're going to go through a couple of these and, and then hopefully then start to wrap it up. Someone does something that hurts us. There's an injury. Okay, that's where it starts. Now, it could be big. It could be some form of abuse. It could be uh, rejection. It could be uh, a fight. It could be words. It could be something big. It could be something that is traumatic. I'm not dismissing that because I do, th- I mean, that happens all the time. You know, when you live in a, in a culture that promotes sin and we're all sinners, I have no doubt that many in here have suffered what I would say uh, the, uh, the consequences of, uh, from the hands of somebody who abused or rejected or did something to them that's a big offense. Okay? I'm, not, I'm not dismissing that at all tonight. Um, but what it could be, though, because it's in the text, is it also could be very small. It could be gossip. See, in our minds, gossip's a huge deal. But in the grand scheme of things, when you consider someone that may have been abused, gossip's not, not, not really that big of a deal. It could be gossip. It could be uh, words that are exchanged. It could be a perceived dirty look. It could be something small. Okay, and I and I'm not I'm not I, I'm not trying to dismiss what someone has gone through. What I'm trying to tell you tonight is don't don't discount it just because it's small. See, a lot of times we think, well, it's no big deal. I was just gossip, and I just need to get over it. No, the 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 fruit that res, that is a result of a seed that's a small thing can show up in the same way as the result of a seed that was planted that was big. Because here's Saul, and this is a small offense. It's a small hurt. It's not anything too big. It's a small thing. It's words to a song. But the small things can result in something just as big. So tonight, I'm not standing up here dismissing the small things. I'm saying you better be on, you'd better be on lookout. You better be careful. You better have your antennas up looking for the small things. Because I would say that the majority of the offenses that turn into something big started out small. It could be done in ignorance. Someone that doesn't even know they've offended you, and yet we're holding on to something that they don't even know about. It could be even perceived instead of real. Saul perceived an offense that David had nothing to do with. It's just as real, though, in in Saul's mind, in his twisted thinking, it's just as real, it's just as much of an actual offense as something that was big. So there's a hurt, okay? That's the first thing. There's a hurt, there's an offense. The second thing is once the offense is committed, there's a debt that is owed. There's a debt that is owed. 
See, when someone does you wrong, there's this internal sense of justice in all of us that wants us to see that debt repaid. We all want things to be made right. Go to the nursery. If you think, well, we don't have an an innate sense of justice or fairness, go watch what's happening in the nursery right now. If you don't think that we all in our human nature have a sense of justice or fairness, go watch two 18-month-olds interact over a toy that they both want. If one 18-month-old goes up to the other one and takes their toy and walks away, that other one doesn't say, oh, I wonder what just happened. I'll go gladly play with a different toy now. No. No, in his or her little mind, they're thinking, that's unfair. They took something that belongs to me. There's a sense of, there's a sense of justice in them, and they want that fixed. There's a debt that's owed, and they want it repaid. Our nature wants things to be fair, and when they're not, we don't usually respond positively. We just don't. So here it is. The offense takes place, and there's an important moment, and that important moment comes when you choose what to do with the debt. There is a debt that's owed, and you say, well, it shouldn't be a big deal. I know it shouldn't be a big deal, but as human nature calls it a big deal, makes it a big deal. So you have a choice to make in that moment, you can either hold on to that debt or release it. We either release, that's the third step. We either release the person from the debt that they owe us or we choose to make sure they repay every single penny. So here's an example, and this happened to me recently and I have a phone up here that is very broken. Okay, this is an iPhone. It's not the brand, brand new iPhone, so this is old news now, but I went on a trip recently and we rented a 15-passenger van and there's this little slot in the door okay, that looks like a cell phone holder. So I put my cell phone in it and shut the door. Well, that little slot serves absolutely no purpose and that when, it shut, when you shut the door, it goes up underneath the dash just like that. There's, no, there's not an air conditioning vent. It's just, it's just, a, just a cruel designer at Ford thinking, I wonder how many cell phones we can destroy in this little slot right here. Okay, so that's what happened to my cell phone, okay? I'm going to have to replace this thing eventually. Well, let's just pretend, though, that that's not what happened to my phone. Let's pretend, though, then, that I loan you my phone because you need to make a call or take a picture, okay? Uh, So I loan you my phone, and you take my phone, and you go do what you're doing with it, and while you're doing whatever you're doing with it, you drop it on the concrete and you break it in. It looks something like this. So you bring the phone back to me and, and you say, hey, I'm really sorry, I, I dropped your phone and it's broken. And you know what that is? It's an offense. Now, I'm not saying I'm offended. I'm saying that, that, it, that something happened that I have to choose what to do with that now. Someone owes me something. And I say, well, you broke my brand new phone, so you owe me a new functioning phone. Phone, does everyone think that that sounds like a a fair thing to say? Yes, I do. If you take the phone, you borrow it, you break it, and I say, well, you just owe me a new functioning phone. I need a phone that was in, in working order like when you took it. But then the third step comes in. So remember, there's an offense. Now I have to choose what to do with it. So if I tell that person, even though there's an offense... And even though you owe me for this phone, I will not make you pay the debt. I have released you 
from the dead. And what that means is that I will be the one that pays for a new phone. I've released you from the obligation that you have to me. Now listen, it doesn't mean that I'm not angry about it. It doesn't mean that I don't incur some major loss because I have to go pay for a new phone. It simply means that, that I have chosen to not force that person to pay the debt that they owe me. That's all it means. Well, in that same scenario, let's say that you borrow my phone, you take it, you're taking a picture, you're, you're making a phone call, you drop it, same scenario, you break it, now it's broken, you come back to me with the phone and say, here's the phone, I'm very sorry, I broke it. And it, only this time, so again, same scenario, there's an offense, I have a choice to make. Except for this time, rather than saying, you owe me a debt, you owe me a phone, but I won't make you pay. I say, listen, I gave you a functioning phone. It was working just fine when I gave it to you. I gave it to you in good faith, and I thought you would bring it back to me just like I gave it to you. But instead, I have a broken phone that I can't even use. And listen, you are going to pay for me to get a new phone, and it better be just like the old one. If not, we're going to go round and round. See, that, that was my, that's my tough guy act. It's not real. So takes me a lot to work up to that. See, that's the difference between forgiveness and unforgiveness. Forgiveness releases someone from the death that they owe. Unforgiveness means, no, you're going to pay this. And in case you're wondering, this is exactly what Christ is talking about in Luke 11 when he says, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. That word indebted is a financial term, and that is forgiveness at its most basic level. Forgiveness is the act of setting someone free from an obligation to you that is a result of wrong done against you. Let me say that one more time. Forgiveness is, is the act of setting someone free from an obligation to you that is a result of a wrong done against you. Various dictionaries define it as ceasing to demand a penalty for, ceasing to blame. The Bible words translate for, translated forgiveness generally mean to send away, to release, to set free. It means to cut something loose and to let it go. That's forgiveness. It means even though you owe me for a new phone, I will pay for the phone and let you walk away free. That's forgiveness. I have, uh, I have two nephews uh, on my wife's side and uh, their brother and Mrs. Stevens' grandsons. Uh, Aaron's brother Ryan has two boys named Elijah and Ethan. Well, one day they had gotten into a fight and they were, you know how parents do, I don't, I don't even know the this, this scenario, I don't know the story, but they had gotten into a fight. I'm sure it was a big fight because brothers don't fight unless it's big. It's a, always a big fight, okay? So mom got the two boys together and made them work it out. And, you know, they probably got in trouble for it. And then they have to forgive each other. You've been through this scenario before, right? With your kids or you remember what it was like when you were a kid. And you say this to this one, you say, now tell your brother you love him and you forgive him. And I forgive you. Then this brother does the same. Well, in this scenario, I don't remember which one it was. It doesn't really matter but I think it really displays our misunderstanding of forgiveness. Because one said, I forgive you. The other one then turned and said to his brother, I forgive you too, but you're going to pay for this. 
I forgive you, but you're going to pay for this. See, that is the exact opposite of forgiveness. See, forgiveness is to say, you owe me, but I won't make you pay for this. There's an offense, there's a hurt, there's something owed, but I will not hold on to this, I will let it go. See, Saul refused to let go of the debt that he felt David owed him. And what makes this situation worse is there's not a real offense from David. It was all Saul's perception. And that matters because, listen, if Saul could turn a perceived offense into a lifetime of hatred and destruction, we have to be on guard. There are real offenses, but most of the ones that trip us up are not. We're just not good at forgiveness. It's against our nature. And if we've been hurt, we don't like to release the offender from the debt they owe us. And we, many of us in our lives, and our idea of forgiveness is I forgive them, but they're going to pay for this. I forgive them, but they are going to pay and I'm going to make sure that they do. And listen, if that is our definition of forgiveness, then we have totally missed the boat on what it means to forgive. And maybe you're holding on to something that you keep waiting for somebody else to have to pay for. Well, I can tell you this much, that's not forgiveness. And I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not even saying it's what we prefer to do. I'm not even saying it's what we would like to do. But holding on, and we'll look at this in the next sermon, holding on to unforgiveness binds us. But letting go frees us. And I don't want to rush through this next part, so... I'm going to wrap it up here with an illustration. This is, I was reminded on the importance of forgiveness with a powerful example just this afternoon. Many in here have been following the trial of Amber Geiger. And she's a Dallas police officer. And um, last year, last September, she uh, was walking home from a shift at work. She's a single lady, police officer in Dallas. She was walking home and she walked to her apartment um, and walked to the wrong apartment door. And, you know, some, some trials kind of capture the nation's attention, and I think this has kind of done that. It's not the O.J. Simpson trial or anything, but it's been pretty big and it made headlines. She walked into the wrong apartment. And when she opened the door, she sees a man standing there. His name's Botham John. He's from Saint, the St. Saint Saint Lucia, the islands, or somewhere in the, in the Caribbean, somewhere. And, and he's sitting on the couch, his own couch. And he's watching football. And she opens the door, but she hadn't really been paying attention. So she opens the door, and there's a man sitting in what she perceives to be her apartment. So her police training kicks in, and she pulls her firearm. And in the middle of all that, this completely innocent man, apparently a very good man, an accountant, he's not doing anything wrong, just sitting there, this man says, whoa, 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 wait, or something along those lines, and starts to get up. Rather than giving a chance for him to explain herself or to figure out what's happening or, or recognize where she's at, she shoots twice, and once she gets him right in the chest and kills him. So in his own living room, on his own couch, in his apartment. So, of course... Uh, they, she was arrested, and all, about a year later, almost over a year later now, she just was recently found guilty of murder. 
and in being found guilty of murder, her sentencing was today, and she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Well, as I was reading about this, and I haven't followed it very closely, but a headline really grabbed me today, uh, understanding kind of what has been going on with it, in that Botham Jean's brother, an 18-year-old, his name is Brant. Well, he took the witness stand, and he spoke to Geiger and said this. So he's 18 years old. I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I love you just like anyone else, and I'm not going to hope that you rot and die. His brother's the one that was shot. I personally want the best for you. I wasn't going to say this in front of my family, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want for you. Give your life to Christ. I think giving your life to Christ is the best thing Botham would want for you. 18 years old. He then asked the judge if he could give Geiger a hug. The judge granted that. He stepped off the witness stand and met Geiger in front of the judge's bench and embraced Amber Geiger as she broke into tears before she was led off to prison. And I say that tonight because I'm thinking, what an example by a young man. An 18-year-old young man who could have just as easily stood up and held on to the offense and ripped Amber Geiger up and down in front of that courtroom. The Jean family could hold on to the choice of Amber Geiger, but it won't change the outcome. To release that offense into God's hands is the only way to prevent it from becoming a bond. Eastside Baptist Church member, I'm asking you tonight, are you holding on to unforgiveness? Is there something in your life that you refuse to let go of? So I pray that this message will help you begin to take steps toward forgiveness. Because we think if we're going to make somebody pay for it, eventually when they do, it's going to be satisfying. But all it does, until they, if they ever do, all it does is bind us to the roots of bitterness. Which we'll talk about during the next message. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.